everybody. Welcome back to East T West, the freshly brewed queer Asian podcast for queer Asians all across the globe. If this is your first time listening to us, um, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to us. And we have a whole pilot season on Spotify and Anchor that you can listen to. And also, we had our first episode posted a couple of weeks ago for Valentine's Day. So for uh, everyone out there, just give it a listen. And if this is not your first time with us, welcome back. My name is Izzy. I am a queer, bisexual, Malaysian, Chinese, American living in Tallahassee, Florida, and I'm a social worker. And as usual, I'm joined by my favorite co-host, who will also introduce our guests for this episode. Hi there, everybody. You know who it is. You know what time it is. My name is Carmi. I identify as lesbian. I am Filipino-Chinese, uh, raised in SoCal. And yeah, I am currently in cyber governance starting this month and I really can't tell you what it is that I do. However, I am joined with other people who can tell you what it is they do. We have Marilyn from Singapore, we have Dasa from Indonesia, and we have Brian from the Philippines. Can y'all give us a little background starting with Marilyn? Hi, my name is Marilyn. Uh, I'm a queer, bisexual, Chinese, Singaporean poet and artist. And I am interested in a lot of interdisciplinary things like sociolinguistics and witchcraft. Before we actually have the other two guests introduce themselves, I just want to also say that they are actually returning to the podcast um, one of our episodes from our pilot season, Homecoming, if you haven't listened to that, please check it out. They have some amazing things to say. We talked about what it's like to be a queer person returning to your home country after immigrating. And uh, today is actually, we're going to be doing a continuation of that somewhat with a little bit more depth. And so we're really happy and thankful for Doss and Brian for returning. So uh, if you guys can reintroduce yourselves to our audience or introduce yourselves to our new listeners, go ahead. Uh, we can start with Dasa. Hi, everyone. My name is Dasa. I go by he, him as pronouns, and I identify as um, a gay male living in Canada, but I'm ethnically Indonesian. Um, I just graduated from the University of Ottawa in mathematics and economics, and right now I am putting together a queer Asian arts collective and dance party called Dragon Fruit, name drop, right now as a side project while I wait for my master's and employment. Hi everyone, it's Brian here again. Uh, I'm a gay man living in London. I was born and raised in the Philippines and currently working as the most stereotypical Filipino job ever, being a nurse. Yeah. So yeah, um, just finished uh, watching a concert earlier, so I'm experiencing post-concert depression. I want to eat chocolate all night. And for those of you who don't follow our uh, guests on their Instagrams just yet, Brian went to see Super M, and I was watching his Instagram stories, and, you know, I'm glad one of us jopped. He jopped. He was jopping. So, Again, thank you all for coming back and also welcome Marilyn. And uh, I just want to recap 
a little bit of what we talked about in the homecoming episode from the pilot season, where again, like I said, we were talking about what it's like to live as your queer self after immigrating um, or going to another country and then returning home. We talked about the queer communities in our respective cultures and uh, countries. And also I just want to point out that we are all Southeast Asian the superior Asians, if I may add. So this is going to be spicy and there's going to be curry and there's going to be lots and lots of humidity. That's what it's like over there. So the reason why we wanted to do a part two was because we kind of left the ending of the homecoming episode with this whole idea of being your empowered queer self and living your truth and, you know, being out and proud so that we can lift our communities up. And it got me thinking after a while. And Dawson and Brian and I ended up talking about it at some point in between that episode and the recording that we're doing today about how it's really, really easy for us to say stuff like, you know, live your truth, be you, be free, when we're in other countries and we are not back in our home places. Like, we can't just say that to people who live there. And that's privilege. And that's one of the things that we're going to talk about, aside from appropriation. So prepare for some steaming, hot tea. Carmi, do you have anything to add about that? Um, I was so busy partying in Singapore that I really kind of need to dial back down and learn a lot from this episode. Okay, so let's talk about being visible and queer. And I want to start with our prompt, who gets to be queer, in your opinion? Is that, feel free to jump in, anybody, and let's talk about this, because I think Carmi and I had actually talked about a long time ago in one of our episodes about our identities and how, especially since we both moved to uh, the United States, our identities as Asians in America kind of came first. We had to deal with that and our sexual identities kind of took a back burner. And definitely when I was living back in Malaysia and I was still trying to figure myself out, I wasn't, I didn't ever feel like I was allowed to be queer. And I thought about this question because uh, I I saw in the news, I think it was a long time ago, how there is this openly gay Indian prince who um, he became very famous because he's out and he actually opened up his palace as a shelter for uh, other gay people as, as refuge in India, which was amazing. And he also helped strike down the penal code in India against same-sex activity that was put in place by colonialism, which we will get to. And I thought about this because, on the other hand, he also traveled to New York City to raise hundreds and thousands of dollars for the LGBT charity that he started in India. But I thought about how, you know, that's really amazing, but not everybody can do that. And I, I know that there's like a few openly gay uh, Malaysian icons. There's one that I do follow on Facebook. His name is Panky Tik. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, I haven't been back to Malaysia in a while. And by that, I mean a few months. But he's openly gay and he talks about those issues all the time. He's very visible. Uh, 
I want to ask, I want to open this up to our awesome guests. If Do they have any openly queer uh, individuals who are out and doing activism in your countries? Um, so basically, to answer the question of who gets to be queer, there's two parts of this. So my first answer would be is that everyone gets to be queer. But the second part of it is that we have to be aware that when we say queer or LGBTQ, we're looking at it from a white-centric lens. And as I said previously in, my, in, in, in the previous episode, because of this white-centric lens, we tend to not view things contextually. And when we think of gay guys, we only think guys in San Francisco or LA with their muscular six-pack or going out every weekend, we tend to kind of like push all the other types of gay people onto the sideline. And because of this, linking back to the next question, which is like, is there any um, out Indonesian superstars? There are a few, but again, they tend to sort of try to, to fit into this mold of being gay from a white lens. That means that because they're gay, they have to look good. Because they're gay, they have to uh, put on a show, essentially. And I think that that's very toxic. You know what's interesting is that there's, like, stereotypes about gay people, like like men being flamboyant or feminized. And growing up in Malaysia, I kind of saw that as well. But at the same time, when I moved to the United States, I kind of asked myself, is this how gay people are? Is this how we are supposed to be? Like, is this just... I, I was, like, looking at other lesbians and bisexual women, out women, white women in the United States and kind of asking myself, am I supposed to look like this? Is this how it – I was just trying to find out how am I supposed to be gay, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And um, I think in Singapore, since I've never been – I've never lived out of the country for, like, any significant amount of time, um, my experience is a little bit different. But I think it's also tempered by the way that we import queerness into um, our kind of culturally homogenous country, you know, because Singapore, as much as they like to say it's racially diverse, it's multicultural, blah, 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 it's also um, kind of ruled by a Chinese majority, right? And then, you know, like, how does queerness present itself there? You know, are you taking your cues from, say, Taiwanese lesbians who, you know, like, position themselves a certain way? Are you taking your cues from very, very binary butch femme culture, you know? Or um, in in the gay scene, for example, when I see um, how gay men move and negotiate through spaces, they seem to be, you know, either hyper-masculine or very camp, very femme. So I think we're still kind of struggling and negotiating, like, what non-binary queerness means to us if that makes sense yeah absolutely I kind of question like where do we get our cues from we tried to ask this question or to kind of get a gauge for it in the previous episode about what does our country's queer culture look like like what does it mean to be for example queer in Malaysian like what does queer Malaysian culture look like what does queer Singaporean culture look like where do we get these cues from yeah, and um, more so than that, I feel like the privilege of coming out is something that's afforded to people that aren't really connected uh, very deeply to a conser- conservative family network. So, for example, 
if I come out, it's much easier for me to deal with because I'm pretty much functionally estranged from my family, right? So I don't really talk to my um, my extended family who may be more conservative. My parents have had like a long time to deal with my coming out and I was like forced to come out. So I didn't really have that decision of, oh, you know, I'm going to come out now. This is, you know, my... This is who I am, blah, blah, blah. But I see that process being kind of stunted or different because I think the idea of coming out as queer is also kind of uh, an imported Western concept, right? And for a lot of people, especially for, let's say, a conservative uh, Muslim person, it's going to be difficult because you're going to negotiate all these really difficult family ties and religious ties uh, that are very much entwined with your everyday presence. And so, you know, you there are different ways to be queer, I guess. I was thinking about, as you were talking about this, and, you know, as we live our lives, certain people are able to be queer because of their placement in their families, and if they have to distance themselves. And the thing is that I also want to remind us that being queer is just one facet of ourselves. And I wish, I wish that we didn't get boiled down to that identity. But the truth is that since we have to come out, but just because we come out does not mean that we have to continuously come out. I was thinking about how just because we're queer, we don't have to be activists. We shouldn't have to be activists. We just want to live our lives. The people who are out and visible in the different countries in Southeast Asia like they become champions for the LGBT movement. And I wish that they didn't have to because I feel like every single queer person does not need to be an activist. There are certain people who are shaped to do that, but we all shouldn't have to. And I just want to say that this question, this notion that um, only privileged people can be um, can be outwardly queer. There's also a class aspect to this as well, because a lot of times um, people who come from money or people who have money, they have the privilege to come out to their conservative parents, let's say, because they don't need that support system. But if you are, you know, a struggling student with lots of debt, then that means that you have to sort of live with your parents because you can't afford to live on your own. And as a result, you can't be outwardly queer. And I think both of you made a point that there is this class aspect that is intertwined and that not everyone can be activists and we have to be mindful of that. Yeah, going back to that Indian prince, he's a prince, you know? He's got money, he has power, he has status. Like, he had a palace that he could open up as a shelter. And granted, people in power, like, maybe they're able to use their power to help other people come out. But the truth of the matter is, even if he does help those people come out, they're still not going to have the resources that he has. They're not going to have palaces or, you know, the ability to be gay. And even though he did get, I thought he got disowned by his family, but he's still a prince. He still has assets. Honestly, I want to make a comment that as you were talking about this prince, I couldn't help but think of two different characters. I thought of like, Prince Naveen from Princess and the Frog, <laughs> except like gay. Oh my God. And then I was oh, yeah, like, that, that was in my head. That was in my head. Yeah, I was thinking of a, like a gay Prince Naveen, and then I was also thinking like, why am I also thinking of Dasa as like an Indonesian prince? Like, why? Why is this story so rogue? Like, 
because of that photo. I'm sure it's that photo that yeah, he gave that us. Photo, to post. That photo is in my head. Oh my gosh. Dasa, you are true royalty. Everybody, we we saw, we said this when we were chatting the other day, like how we only welcome majesty here. We're all royals. Brian, do you have? Sorry, do you have something? Yeah. So in regards to like um, activists uh, in the Philippines for LGBT, um, we. I do have a queer politician. She's transgender, but she comes from a family of like um, a political dynasty, if you will. And she was recently, uh, she was elected into a Senate position a few years back. But then uh, when she was campaigning, yeah, people were rooting for her but because she was the first like openly out LGBT uh, politician. But then as the years went by, the policies she made were like really questionable. They were in support of like political dynasties, which isn't good in a sense because it's keeping power in the family really. So she's devolved into becoming a, well, what we call in the Philippines trapo, a traditional politician who just wants to consolidate power. But then other, uh, besides her, we have like some nightclubs, especially the one that I frequent whenever I'm in the Philippines, uh, Nectar Nightclub, shout out, um, who raise funds to fund Home for the Aged, for the gays, queer, uh, old gay people in the Philippines. So like we support our own. And recently there's been a rise of queer activism, especially in schools who are out in protest and for the recent same-sex marriage bill that was trashed by the Senate. So, yeah. I have no idea about any of this. And I love how you talked about the fact that that politician, like you said, she comes from a dynasty of political dynasty, you said. But then you also contrasted that with the gay nightclub. And, you know, there's like a difference between community and individuals who, like we said, who can be visible and use that visibility in in certain ways. Like I thought about Caitlyn Jenner when you were mentioning that politician, how she came out as trans and transitioned and it was like huge impact and people were kind of pointing to her as like, oh, she's going to be an icon for transgender people. And then turns out she's a Republican and she's actually really conservative and champions things that hurt her community, ironically. But she can afford to rise above all that. Yeah, so with regards to her, I haven't really kept up with news about her. But then when she was campaigning, um, she was already she already transitioned. Um, she she comes from a rich family. Ger- um, Geraldine Roman yeah. is the name. Right? Yeah, that's. You, I thought we were talking about Caitlyn. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sorry. Go on. So after that one, we kind of pushed her aside for more um, iconic women that we regard as LGBT champions, such as Risa Hunteveros and uh, the other women politicians who are for um, same-sex marriage, who actively defend our rights in the Philippines. And we love them for that. Especially, uh, I think Risa, she has come to Pride March as well in support for the gays. Shout out to all of these activists and that you can name drop them. I feel really bad that I can't really name drop anyone in Malaysia except for that one dude who, again, he's awesome. Um, 
it makes me wonder when we have these little pockets of activism that happen where like communities are coming together to start to fight for LGBT rights and visibility. And it makes me wonder when those laws finally do get passed in their favor and everyone's allowed to be legally queer, I guess. I'm thinking about the conversations that they're having in those courtrooms about why they shouldn't allow it to take place in their countries. And I want to talk about one argument that I definitely think is being passed around and it actually leads us to our second prompt. But one of the arguments against allowing LGBT people to be people is that this isn't our culture. This comes from the West. This is the Western influence coming into our countries. And we talked a a lot about this in the homecoming episode in the pilot season, but it makes me feel a little weird because then it kind of makes me think, is queer culture colonized? I want to start with visualizing what comes to mind when you think of the queer scene. Like you think of fabulous, you think of drag and yas and glitter and all of that stuff. And as as Dasa was talking about the the six pack men in California who all look really good looking. In your opinions, is queer culture something that has been colonized or is owned by the West? I want to say something real quick about this, um, because when you talk about glitter and drag and you know, all this yas and fabulous and voguing, um, this comes from a place of violence, violence against people of color. Drag was created out of resistance. It was created uh, by trans women of color, mostly, mostly Latinos and black women of color in New York City. So, like, yes, it does come from the West, but it stems from the violence of people of color and it's not what like now it is whitewashed like drag is so whitewashed now because it's so commercialized but we have to understand and be mindful that uh queer culture was created by black women of color trans women and people of color in general so this notion that queer people are white and that it's people in california or whatever with six packs sure they dominate the scene now but we have to be mindful that it was created by uh, queer people of color firstly. Yes. Also, like, I was just reading an article which said that the first drag queen was actually, like, um, this African slave who had been brought over and then proceeded to kind of illegally hold these uh, gatherings for himself and other queer people so you know it was kind of like an emancipatory thing and like an escape from the horrors of slavery at that time i i want to clap my hands dasa and marilyn way to go for reminding us that yes a lot of this stuff has come from queer people um of color and there's a lot of things like the ballrooms and certain words certain term terminologies that we can link back to, especially queer Black people, actually. And there's a lot of talk in the U.S. uh, about that, how it's been appropriated. And you were talking about, like, there are so many drag queens, especially because, like, RuPaul's Drag Race and stuff. And there's a lot of white drag queens. And I feel like 
a lot of people, they think, when they think of drag queens, I think sometimes most of the time they're going to think of a white drag queen. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Um, because if you think about it, in the 1970s and to the 2000s, drag is very diverse. Queer community is uh, very diverse, and we have po sub pockets of subculture everywhere. But because it's entering mainstream spaces now, because it's so commercialized now, um, more and more white people are entering and quote-unquote colonizing the space. So, and people of color are kind of left onto the sidelines mostly, or we have to fit into this notion of being queer like a white person. Man, that is some deep tea. The depths of the teacup, we're going to drown in it. Like, and not just queer white people, but even straight people, like, Yas has become such an iconic word that everybody uses. I use it as well, and straight people use it immensely. Like, you'll see it on t-shirts, you'll see it in pop culture. And I've thought about how when people in the West see queer communities in other countries... I feel like it's very easy for them to say, oh, you've appropriated this culture. You've appropriated queer communities of color, which is ironic. So it's like, first it gets appropriated by white people, and then it gets appropriated by communities in other countries and cultures. And then it's like this never-ending train. Yeah, I hate that it's somehow seen as the most progressive thing when, you know, historically the West has come to African and Asian countries and said, oh, you guys can't be queer anymore because we've decided this is not good for you, you know. And then after that, they decided they invented queerness again and decided to sell it back to us. And often um, in the guise of consumerism and capitalism as well, you know. And democracy. Think about all of these Western powers shaking their fingers, wagging their fingers at these countries, being like, oh, you're not progressive. You're not liberating your people and giving them freedom to be themselves. And, and we talked about this in the previous episode about when India got rid of its sodomy law and how people were like, oh, my God, India's finally being progressive. When the fucking British... <laughs> yeah who gave you the law in the first place and all of a sudden they're liberated it really pains me when I I've had family members kind of say to me or kind of imply that well all of this comes from Izzy being in the United States and being queer and that's not part of our legacy that's not part of our history there's no place for that here and they're very devout religious people and devout followers of a religion that was introduced into Malaysia. You know, obviously, I'm talking about Christianity that was well exported from the United States and from Europe and all those missionaries. That actually brings me to our next prompt, our last prompt. But I have we have a lot more to talk about this. Do countries who have not yet put in place LGBT rights deserve to be called backwards? So I think that um, I'm going to go against the grain and say this, but I think that, yes, they do deserve to, to be called backward um, because, you know, if, he, if someone murders somebody, it's still murder. And I think that when countries 
discriminate against gay people or queer people, it's still discrimination at the end of the day, and we need to call it out. I mean, like, if you think about it, it's kind of racist to say that, like, oh, just because someone is Muslim or Asian, that means they get a free pass to discriminate against LGBTQ people. So, for example, my home country, Indonesia, um, we discriminate against LGBTQ people a lot. And a lot of Western countries are telling us that, like, look, this is a backward thing to do. And I agree with that, you know. Um, They deserve to be called out for practicing discriminatory uh, acts against LGBTQ people. And uh, I don't want to infantilize people of color just because they're Asian, just because they're Muslim. I don't care. You still discriminate against uh, queer people and you need to be called out on it. I, I will hold the same standard for white people and everyone else in this world and regardless of race because if you expect lower from a muslim person or an asian person oh you know he comes from a conservative family so i understand that uh, I, I understand that he he discriminates against queer people like no none of that we need to stop infantilizing asian people or conservative people and we need to treat them like any other human being and hold them accountable for their discriminatory practices yeah completely damn damn but also i think that it's important not to conflate um this notion of backwardness with something that is cruel or discriminatory or um harmful to human rights you know so i mean yes we can hold everybody accountable to the same standard of basic human dignity i think that's like that's that should go without saying but also i think that it's very important that we don't fall into the very i guess orientalist trap of saying oh you know these thinkings or these practices are backwards and uh you know this is a symptom of the the way that these countries civil rights movements haven't progressed blah 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 but um I also feel like even supposedly, I guess, what is the word for it? First world countries, developed countries, like say Singapore, you're supposed to be some kind of fucking tech hub or like really um, first world developed nation. But you still have things like corporal punishment. You still have things like an anti-sodomy law. So, you know, like, I don't think it's necessarily productive to call a country backward. They can be very advanced in some areas, but in some others, you know, they're lagging. But we have to understand that, like, like countries roll back their quote-unquote backward practices because people call them out. Like, change starts because people speak out. Like, like change starts not because we give a free pass to Muslim, to conservative Muslims or Christians or Asian or any people of color. Change starts by speaking out against the very power that oppresses against you. So I think that, uh, yes, we need to understand the context and the kind of cultural imposition that Western countries impose on Asian countries during colonization. I want to add on to that because both of you have kind of opened my eyes in this I, I felt like when I when we talked about this prompt or we were discussing putting this prompt in that it was going to be a very one-dimensional response, but actually I'm very inspired because, first of all, I'm the person who will straight up blame everything on colonization, but no, it's true. Like, you kind of see the impact. This is, a lot of this is the lasting impact of colonization. This is how powerful that trauma and that power and control and those ripple effects are 
since we're on the topic of colonization, like in the Philippines, uh, pre-Spanish era, so like a uh, quick history uh, lesson like <laughs> for everyone. So the Philippines was colonized by Spain for like 300 plus years. And after that one, we were colonized by the Americans and the Japanese, then the British, very briefly. Then we were granted independence. So pre-colonization era, we already had like LGBT people uh, in the Philippines who, who were highly respected individuals. They were called like babaylans. I might have mentioned it in the previous episode. And they were uh, shamans in the community who were like healers. Uh, mostly uh, they were men who dressed as women or like were, who were openly gay or trans. So when the Spanish came, there was this machismo culture who like the patriarchy basically who forced these men into hiding and then once the revolution started um these gay people of course made an uprising against the colonizers and there were like in my province especially there were like three prominent babaylans who started the revolution in that area and basically sparked the whole Philippine independence from Spain. And so these LGBT people were highly respected, but then they were forgotten in the history books because the influence from the colonizers permeated into society where like LGBT were seen as lesser people, but then we were very, what do you call it, influential to say in starting the revolution. Gay Filipinos will start a revolution anywhere, right, Brian? I mean, yeah. You piss one off or you piss on our culture, <laughs> you will never hear the end of it. Oh my god. Actually, I just thought about how when you have enough people with power, the tide turns. When there are enough people who are able to accumulate that power. Like, you were talking about, Ryan, about how people got together and we're able to take things back. And I want to also jump back to the whole idea of backwards. I don't want to put whole countries on that a label because if you think about it, so in the US, there is a never-ending war against LGBT people. There's people who are trying to fight for rights and there's people who are trying to take them away. There are plenty of people in the US who are backwards who by very definition, are backwards. And a lot of them, unfortunately, are in power at this time, especially in Florida, but even more so now the tide has turned in favor of the backwards-thinking conservative assholes in the government. So I, I think it's safe to say that we can define the idea, like the, the ideals as backwards, but I don't ever want to do like throw a whole culture under the bus because I've like had listened to therapists who have said stuff who have kind of attributed people's problems to their culture. And maybe sometimes that's true, but it kind of puts someone in the place of having to defend themselves and to defend their identity. And then it's like a place of shame. Like I, I remember kind of trying to defend my identity when I was um, talking to somebody and 
is it true that yes, mental health in Malaysia sucks? They do not do a good job of addressing mental health there. We are very backwards in that aspect. Maybe it is a part of our culture now, but like I said, it's about power. All of this is about power and control. And right now, the majority of people who are controlling the thought process of the nation, I feel, have very backwards thoughts towards mental health. And that's, I'm going to leave it at that. Can I add in just a little bit? Sorry. <laughs> I want to uh, view this topic from a different lens. When I criticize the government of Indonesia and its culture and its oppressive culture against women and and uh, LGBTQ people, it comes from a p- place of love. Um, it comes from a place of patriotism because I believe that future Indonesians deserve to live in a better place where you know people, regardless of sexual orientation or gender, can be accepted. So when I call out, you know, I can come up as very aggressive when I call out uh, backward Indonesians. But it's not about, it's not more about bashing the, the Indonesian culture. It's about trying to understand the symptoms of this problem in the first place. And obviously there is a lot, there is an infinite list of things that should be fixed. But, you know, when I am very outspoken about this, it come, at the end of the day, it comes from a place of love. And it's not me trying to strip away my Indonesian identity. I feel that so much. I think that when I see civil activism being done in Singapore, um, independent journalists like Chris and Han, shout out, um, because we don't have a lot of press freedom, right? So when uh, activists like her and people like uh, Jolivan Wam kind of talk about the way Singapore is not um, doing right by its minority citizens, by the people who need it the most, they get called out on the internet and sometimes even in parliament as people who don't love their country or people who are traitors, blah, blah, blah. But all of this criticism actually comes from a place of love, right? You think that we can do so much better, but we're not. And this is why. And I, I don't think that's something to be decried or to be afraid of, which we are very. I think that I would love to see a Malaysia that can fall in love with its LGBT history. Like, I don't know what it was like pre-colonization because I'm not as well-versed in the history of my country as Brian is. Damn. But I would love to see that reconciliation as Dasa was talking about. I want to see it happen. And like we all said, it's coming from a place of love because we need to, we love our countries. We love ourselves. We love this rich dynamic history and culture that we all come from and we deserve better. And like, we have, like just as much as I call out uh, repressive and like quote unquote Indonesian culture, we also have to call out the bigger problem of this, which is white supremacy and colonization, which we mentioned before, like that is the, that is the, I guess the crux of the problem, but what we can do right now to remedy was to move forward, right? Like we can't go back in time and prevent colonization from happening. So what we can do is you um, you fix the problem now and just move forward from it. But we have to be mindful that all of this uh, backwardness, I guess, comes from colonization essentially. You know what? You actually just reminded me of this. This is actually an optimum time to bring this up. Hey, Brian, it's really funny how after we recorded the first Homecoming episode, I think it was like literally the next day or a few days later, there was this whole news story on Twitter was going wild about this Filipino boy band. 
who was going on a tour and they were going to your your place, which was Negros, right? Yes. You know where I'm going with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We so. gotta say the whole thing though, because it's actually like one whole thing. It's yeah. Negros Occidental, right? Brian? Occidental, but the whole province is Negros. So yeah, yeah, it's called Negros and it's divided into two. Oriental and Occidental, East and West. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's it. Go ahead. So what had happened was um so they did a shout out to Negros Occidental. They said, Hey Negros, we're so excited to see you. And Twitter lost its fucking mind. Why? They, yeah, wow. they meaning uh, SB19, I think is the yeah. name of the group, because I yes. actually... Um, I stand them, okay. Yeah, I, I also, <laughs> you know, also on my end, too, like in K-pop growing up and stuff, yeah. um, I, they're recognized as a Filipino uh, pop group. They're not really seen as K-pop yet, although they are, uh, you know, represented by... A Korean, uh, Korean agency, yeah. So, um, after after you and Brian kind of mentioned that prior, you know, when it had been stirring up in your mind, I did a lot of background research on these guys, and they're fantastic, right, Brian? They're they're they yeah, really they're are very good. Mm-hmm. They're really good. Like they, that's the product of like Korean training, really. Not unlike how the Philippines trains its current celebrities <laughs> let the infection begin i'm all for this and the reason why i'm bringing this up is because twitter lost its mind because they were like oh my god they said the n-word and i actually joked to brian i was like how dare you come onto my podcast and say the n-word <laughs> but here's the thing there was i saw something that really stuck out to me somebody online or there's a few people online who who had the audacity to say well, you guys should change your name. You need to change the name of your island in order to not offend us. Oh, my God. Oh, wait, so where this... Okay, the people that said this weren't from the Philippines, right? Like, they never spent no. a day in the Philippines. They they mm-hmm. probably, like, Googled where is, Phil- where is Negros on a map or something like that. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Well, the thing is, people in the Philippines went online and tried to educate people. Like, this is the actual island's name. And it was named by this because of... Go ahead, Brian, this is your yeah, story. The Spanish... Yeah, so, yeah, so, like, product of colonization, we were, the island itself was named, uh, like, the translation of it is hill, <laughs> so because it was a hilly island, so, but then they changed it to Negros because they saw a lot of black people. They were, the native, the native um, people there were black, so that's why they called it Negros. We can basically correlate it to, like, Linguistics probably affects the LGBT as well. It's like who coined who? <laughs> who coined? But also term? just the audacity of them yeah, the saying that people, yeah. that they should change the name and also acknowledge a history that doesn't belong to them. First of yeah. all, like I mean, come yeah. on, call call out culture toxic. <laughs> I was just like shook when they said 
the the people who are like, you can't offend us. Like, do you understand how offensive that is to us? And it's like you're literally telling people to change the name of their of their city of their island. Like, mm-hmm. and it's not your history to do that. But but it, it, that was an example of for me of Western imperialism and wokeness that they were trying to import upon upon your island man they were like these island people are backwards for letting the spanish name them like that and they're keep they keep on doing it like dude negro negra is like the color the word the literal spanish word for black <laughs> so it's, it's just yeah it's black <laughs> so yeah we didn't take offense to it really but then people were like really insistent on like a that doesn't exist. Like you should really change the name of your island. It of- it offends us black people. It's like who gets to be offended here, really? Yeah, I I think we kind of touched upon this in some episodes about how living in another country as an Asian, like growing up Asian American. I have not actually grown up Asian American. I'm currently living Asian American, but. I grew up in a majority Asian country with people who looked like me. And then when I moved to the United States, like things affect me differently. Like that struggle in the United States is not the same struggle as in the Philippines. And it was super unfair to impose that. Like my, I remember when I was seeing this news article about this white girl who wore a Chinese dress to her prom and people were like, oh, that's cultural appropriation. And for me, I agree because I always feel super uncomfortable because also she did the bowing sign, the kowtowing sign in her picture. So I was like, fuck you. But um, I, it made me uncomfortable. I thought it was cultural appropriation. But pe- my cousins in Malaysia were messaging me saying it's not cultural appropriation. Like we don't care. People in China don't care. So she can wear whatever she wants. And I was like, yeah, because people in China are not being affected unlike Asian Americans because we don't live in a majority Asian country. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And also, it's like when people say, oh, you know, can somebody of X race come in here and and give us a lowdown on whether or not you're offended? I mean, that's not the point, right? The point is that it's coming from a place of either ignorance or disrespect, like... um, in Singapore, we have a huge problem with cultural appropriation because uh, basically Chinese people here love to take what's not theirs and wear it. Um, and they're very insensitive about these things also because we have like a very um, limited discourse on uh, racism amongst the general public. So, you know, they'll wear like um, an Indian ethnic costume and say, oh, this is uh, like just me showing off my racial harmony and then they'll say some extremely racist thing and then the internet will go crazy for a while. And um, even other cultures that are not even like native to the region, right? So there was this uh, Chinese wedding that was done recently about maybe a month ago and the couple wore a Native American headdress and uh, somebody no! thought, yeah, it was it was really bad. And their reasoning was because they liked parrots, and the internet just exploded. It was really bad. And um, so they wore Native American headdresses. Their guests wore Indian um, ethnic wear, and so everybody was like, "Oh, did you guys just what? Just 
like just because they're both called Indian, is that what it is? Or you know, and then um, so the people at the wedding itself got really offended, and they said that, oh, um, it wasn't done from a place of uh, malice, or you know, they they were just having fun at a private event, and they didn't mean to cause any harm, and you've caused us harm, and now my and now the bride has to go to um the Institute of Mental Health because she's really upset. And, you know, so there's this whole, like, oh, you're not allowed to call me racist because that's racist kind of level of discourse here. And I think that's kind of really embarrassing on, a nas- on an international level. Yeah. I'm always concerned about uh, whether other countries adopt another a dominant country's idea of what it means to how do I put this about making it sound really bad there are certain times when for example the whole like people telling the Philippines that they need to change their name they need to change the name of their island because it's offensive there's that type of appropriating there's that type of um, condescending wagging your finger like oh you're backwards even though we imported that in the first place. And then there's the effects, again, of colonization of like, we have done a really good job all over the world of deriding people of color, Black people, Native Americans. It's it's interesting because so much of that comes from the U.S., I feel. Dasa, do you want to say something? Yeah, um, it's just funny how like, for people of color, we're kind of shoehorned into this kind of box because every time we want to criticize something, the you know people always say, "Well, your friend who's also Asian says that it's okay for me to do this," and and because of that, we like people of color is not they're not seen as people with opinions; they're just seen as uh, monoliths, right? Because I'm expected to have the same kind of opinion as every other Asian queer, every other Indonesian in this world, whereas that's not the case at all. And I think that's also a product of a colonization where people of color are being are being belittled into a box, basically. And if you don't fit in with other people of color, and that means you're the weird one. And because of that, we're not seen as people with individual opinions and not as indi- with individual freedoms and individual opinions. We've cycled back to something that this is going to be our last discussion point, but I I didn't want to forget to bring this up because you just actually reminded me about now. Okay. So Queer Eye, I fucking love that show. I love Bobby. I want him to please renovate my apartment and make me feel like a queen, but they didn't, they did a, an episode or a series where they, decided to go to Japan and do their whole queer eye thing. And it's that was very interesting. I enjoyed the episodes for the most part, but at some point and there was an article that came out afterwards that I I wasn't able to put my finger on it until I read that article. The whole idea of there is a right way to be queer. And queer people have to look the same. So did any of you have it? Do you guys know what I'm talking about with that episode? With this, yeah. that series? Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've, I've seen yeah. some think pieces on it. <laughs> I haven't watched it. I don't really watch Queer Eye. 
Oh my I've god. Seen some episodes. I've seen you're... some episodes. Oh my I've god, seen... you're a gay man yep. and you don't watch Queer Eye? All gay <laughs> people have to watch Queer Eye, don't you know? I'm being sat I'm being satirical, I... of course. You hope you guys understand that. <laughs> yeah, like I read the article as well. Um and it basically criticizes, you know, how a queer Japan is viewed through like a white lens. And I think it's the criticisms are very fair, but I think it's also a step forward. And we have to congratulate the queer eye team for kind of exposing Japanese culture, even not in the best light, I know. And we're feel free to criticize them, feel free to call them out, but we improve because we call them out, right? I'm pretty sure their next t- queer eye tour, they'll be more mindful of the culture that they're involved in. And that's only because of the criticism um, that we level against them. And that's a good thing, right? I, I feel like progress is not like a black or white thing where it's right or it's wrong. It's more of like a spectrum where um, you do one thing and then you improve on it and then you become better at it. And it plateaus into the sort of like utopia, like queer utopia. And we shouldn't discredit the queer eye team for bringing light into uh this Japanese queer culture but feel free to criticize them obviously so that it's better for the future I wouldn't want to really say that there is criticism in this scenario like I think kind of like what you said Dasa I feel like it's appropriate timing the way that you know I guess the feedback was with the series I look forward to the series because being somebody that's part you know, I'm part Japanese myself. It was a way for me to connect to that part of my culture, which is my grandma's side, you know, uh, and to see people that I'm a really big fan of in in Japanese culture, like uh, Kiko Mizuhara. Like, I really like her stuff. I love fashion myself. My, Like I said, my grandma, I was very close She's to so her. pretty. Yeah, my grandma, like, also liked her a lot, too. And then Naomi Watanabe, like, I follow a lot of her stuff, too. So they had people on the show that were very much allies, in my opinion, right? Like, they, you know, they were allies um, of the kind of progress Queer Eye was hoping to make on such an international platform like Netflix. Uh, yeah, it was commercialized, like, some parts, but there were parts that I kind of want to give more I guess you would say faith to the crew too, uh, knowing that times are different now. Uh, so, for example, Bobby, he himself is in a interracial relationship. Like over half of them are in interracial relationships, and they're really more than willing to kind of, you know, hear the feedback and move along forward. I don't think they have as much like control aside from their individual social media platforms and their side projects but I think deep down like even the audience knows like you know out of the cast who would be problematic and who wouldn't be problematic so for example I personally believe Karamo knows what he's talking about but if you ask any gay person any gay person uh... who has watched the show no, I'm being honest with you. Point out who they think the most. No, I, I know my social work background. Exactly. Him a lot. Yeah, exactly. You already know who it is, so people are paying attention when they watch TV or social media. Yeah. Well, my thing is that they, 
Okay, so those two ladies that you were mentioning, yes, they are really great allies. But there was one episode. Um, it was actually the one. It's the same episode. They took the guy to meet an openly gay Japanese man who's a monk. Like he's actually pretty famous. And I didn't. They didn't actually highlight him that much. They had him talk to him, and it was really, really awesome for him to talk to him. But at some point. I just felt like there were times when they were trying to force this guy, this gay Japanese man to kind of live a life that he may not be able to, or that he doesn't actually want. Cause like the whole idea again of like, there's a certain way to be gay. Like there's a right or wrong way. There's like, there's implication. And, and again, like I don't want to deride countries, but Call yeah, me out to, if you need to. Yeah. yeah, just to quickly jump in, like it brings up the question, like who are we to police how one culture perceives queerness? I mean, yeah, so it's like they're bringing the Western lens onto Japanese queerness. So it's like, um, this is how we are gay in the US. So, uh, we're like showing, like they're showing them how they are gay, but then it doesn't literally translate well into Japanese culture because it's an entirely different area, if you know what I mean. Yeah, actually, um, like, but there's nothing wrong with that at the end of the day, right? I mean, regardless if Queer Eye makes this episode, makes this season about Japan, Japanese queer culture will exist regardless if Queer Eye comes to Japan or not. And they have, they can essentially make their own queer Japanese subculture even without the, uh, these queer eye guys coming to Japan. So I think we need to stop being overprotective when it comes to uh, Western people kind of uh, imposing their narrative. We can, we can obviously criticize it, but at the same time, we can't just completely discredit it and throw it out of the door because they make some really good points at the end of the day and they bring some really some kind of awareness and it also uh, the other thing is that like it humanizes queer Japanese people they're not just some meek uh you know submissive Japanese guys that oh we don't know where we're going with life it's like no they actually have stories as well and queer eye gives a platform to those stories and I think that that's something to give credit to yeah relative it, to where no I'm being honest too like relative to where queer I was like years ago I remember as a kid you know uh when queer I really first came about how they thought that was revolutionary but look at where we're at now there's literally a queer eye Japan on Netflix that I'm watching as an adult after having come out with this story of a Japanese gay guy that is trying to introduce his long distance partner to his family. That's like really, it it shows some sort of progress at least. Like I said, there's always gonna be some sort of commercialism in this, right? But part of me feels like, you know, this podcast, for example, we're, we're bringing in a conversation. We're not trying to educate the public, but we're really just trying to share a conversational space to talk about this stuff. And that, to me, is progress enough. We don't need to be politically correct 
a thousand percent of the time because lord knows i am not like i am like the least politically correct one out of this whole group here uh but at the same time like i agree with dasa completely on that i think that this episode god damn it y'all are teaching me so much I hate, I, I, I don't want to go back to school, okay? Um, no, I think that this episode is teaching us about nuance. And maybe like the discomfort, I guess I'm, I've been projecting a little bit too, because like I said before, the whole idea of growing up and trying to figure out what does it mean to be gay? Like, how should I act in order to bring out my queer identity? Like, how, I just was trying to find my cues from people and the truth is that and even though we might look at some things and be like oh the west is imposing its way of being queer onto these countries like no but the thing is that there are these queer communities already and people like here's the thing drag is awesome voguing is awesome all this stuff is awesome and if that becomes a part of somebody's identity in expressing themselves as their queer selves and who are we to judge that at the end of the day we're all individuals and we're all different i for one i forced myself in the beginning to go to uh, queer nightclubs because i felt like that was what you're supposed to do and the truth is i actually don't enjoy them but i know that for a lot of people it is really important and that is their way of being queer that is their way of expressing themselves and validating themselves and I think even within the queer communities themselves, like we're starting to try, we're starting to realize these nuances and these issues of homogenization because, you know, there's been like this uprising of people wanting to talk about queer sober spaces because, and again, historically, people could only meet in clubs. But like we said, everybody's individualized and we're all unique and we all express ourselves differently. So with that being said... I think that we are, we always end up with this message of like, love is love. Everybody deserves to be themselves. And I really like the things that we talked about in this episode. I knew that this, I hope that this episode is not too serious for those, but this is something that has been on my mind for a long time. And I've always wanted to do this episode about privilege, appropriation, and cultures across the globe. So, I am so, so thankful for everything that you all have brought up because it's taught me a lot. Dasa, you fucking blow my mind all the time. Well, all of you do, but Dasa, damn. Just damn. Thank you. <laughs> also, oh, by the way, I forgot to say this. Congratulations on your graduation. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now come and visit me. <laughs> Y'all are welcome to come visit my tiny apartment. I, I do want to bring something up, though, before you close out. Um, I just want to say, you know, thank you for being vulnerable, talking about the times where you do feel a little bit of self-projection in the space. And just know that, you know, as your friend personally, not just as a co-host, that, you know, we're really free to be ourselves um, on, on this podcast. So whenever you do share those stories with me on the mic or off the mic, it really is appreciated. And, you know, there's probably somebody else out there that, you know, uh, could relate to you in some way. Ah, <sighs> Carmi, I want to hug you. I want to hug all of you. 
everybody has brought like some really, really awesome viewpoints to the table today and coming from all over, man, Southeast Asia represent best Asians. Honestly, we have the best food. Well, Marilyn, I'm going to, I'm going to come for you and say that Malaysian food is better. Uh, I'm not a huge foodie, so I'm gonna just say that I missed the food when I was in London, so, and I don't know any better. Well, just so you know, it's Roti Chanai, not Roti Prata. Okay, here we are. At least it's not an Asian croissant. (laughs) No (laughs) way! I literally saw a post on Subtle Asian Traits the other day about that one. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Hey, this is Asians uniting against against the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what, guys? Just be like Roti Chennai because it's a mixture of like Indian culture, Singaporean culture, Malaysian culture, Indonesian culture, and it becomes like this beautiful, fluffy bread with fish curry on the side. And I think like that's that's something profound, right? Because it's like you learn different things from different culture, and you kind of learn the nuances of it, and you just create this new thing that is essentially better for everybody <laughs> yes. and uniquely asian he's right yeah uh, we're all so tasty just like <laughs> tasty like a fish curry <laughs> i i prefer doll on mine i'm just saying i hope that this episode wasn't too serious and solemn compared to our previous episodes but these are really important issues that Um, I've always had on my mind and I feel like maybe a lot of people in our community in their queer Asian community online and offline have struggled with this or have thought about this as we go about our lives and try to figure ourselves out. So I want to say that I'm super, super thankful for Dawson Bryan for returning to carry on the conversation that we have been having kind of off and on since that episode recording and Y'all have like such brilliant minds and such great things to say. And I really am thankful as well to Marilyn for coming on board for this episode as well, representing Singapore. Yes, it was a pleasure. And we will put all of their information. Now, Brian and Dasa, you are already on our Instagram. So it's up up in the air if we're going to feature you again. But if you have a new thirst trap photo you want to put up there, why not? And so you'll get their information on our Instagram. So be sure to follow us if you haven't already. Shout out to our Instagram followers. We're like, I think we're almost at 300, which blows my mind. And uh, follow us on Facebook. We have lots and lots of tea in store. So that's where you'll get our updates on Instagram and Facebook. But until then, this has been an awesome episode. What do you think, Carmi? Yeah, I want to say thank you so much to our guests, Marilyn. Thank you. Uh, Marilyn's from my extended network. So thank you to my queer Singaporean friends for sending her along my way. Really regret not meeting her. I mean, I pretty much met her because of this podcast. So hopefully in the future, when I return to Singapore, um, I will be able to get to know her. And more of the Singaporean and Malaysian and Indonesian community. Everybody want to pop in and say some last words before we shut it all down? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, I thought it was really nice getting to hear everybody's 
Asian and Southeast Asian perspective. And I think that our conversation has thrown up for me at least um, what queerness, um, I guess, is based on and who gets to be queer. So and how we can, you know, better facilitate that and be a more supportive community, right, to those around us who may not be so privileged. Yeah, I just want to say thank you again. I mean, I already did the whole kind of like conclusion thing last podcast. So if you want to listen to that, then go ahead. So I guess I just want to say thank you again for having me here. Okay, thank you for having me again, guys. (laughs) I just want to shout out to my (laughs) travel buddies. Yeah, I wanna I wanna shout give a shout out to my travel buddies. I'm planning another trip. If anyone wants to meet up, I'll be in Singapore and the Philippines in May. And probably Korea as well if the COVID nineteen outbreak subsides. So yeah, catch me, fly in. You are brave. But you know what? I, you also got to see Super M. So let's dedicate this episode to Ten, because he is great. <laughs> All right. Well. I really have to say one last thing because he had to bring up traveling. Um, I wasn't able to travel, and I have a running joke. I say, you know, lesbians, they never cancel their flights. It took a volcano eruption and the airline company telling me to reschedule, and then it took an international viral outbreak and the international airline telling me to cancel or reschedule. It took me those two major things to have to change my flight. Like, seriously, what the... Maybe the universe (laughs) is telling you something. Oh, I I was supposed to turn up in Taipei in the Philippines, so maybe I doubt it. Highly, highly doubting that the universe is trying to tell me something. Really? A volcano and a virus? (laughs) all right everybody so thanks for listening to us and we'll see you on the next episode so don't forget to follow us on instagram and facebook follow our guests they're awesome and so all right carmy you want to do your thing as you always do all right thank you so much everybody for tuning in and until next time east west represent signing out Thank you all. See you next time.